You're listening to the Pink Granite Podcast. Pink Granite is a bipartisan community supporting women as they forge a career in Texas politics and policy. Candidates, staff, lobbyists, activists, and yes, even supportive men all have a place in the Pink Granite community. Learn more and support our work by visiting pinkgranitetexas.com and following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at pinkgranitetx. Hi, it's Alice Claiborne. Hello, Catherine McLean here. Um, Catherine, I'm so glad for you to join us on the Pink Granite Podcast. It's an honor to be here with you. Um, you know, today and this week marks, not today, this week marks the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. So it's a big week for women here in the U.S. And I, what a better way to sit here and honor Pink Granite, who does such great advocacy for women in politics, to talk to you. You've had like a 20-year um, history and career of working in politics and government, and I'm excited to talk about that and talk about women in leadership with you. Ah, thank you. Well, there's no one I'd rather talk to about that than you, Alice. Oh, you're so and kind. Nowhere I'd rather uh, do it than Pink Granite, which I've admired for so long and um, which does such a fantastic and outstanding job of highlighting women who work in the Capitol, around the Capitol, policy, communications, all of it. So I'm, I'm super excited. Well, first, let's just talk about quickly who you are. You're the CEO and founder of the Mach 1 Group. So tell us a little about that. Oh, so my lifelong dream was starting my own business. And uh, it took more of a circuitous route to get there than I expected. But about seven years ago, a little over seven years ago, um, I started the Mach 1 Group to help nonprofits, for-profits, associations, industry groups uh, with regulatory and legislative goals. Whether they're playing defense or offense, our team, who have all served in government and communications and are you know, seasoned folks who understand both policy and public relations and communications, um, we have been doing that work for seven years now, and we've learned a lot of lessons along the way. We've had a lot of victories, um, not a lot of defeats, luckily. Uh, and we've had, you know, the great privilege of working with some really outstanding clients. So the work is super engaging. It's important. And we have an awesome team, which you are part of, Alice, which I'm very grateful for. So it's like my dream come true. That's awesome. Well, I, that's a good starting point because I wanted to talk about how we first met. Mm -hmm. I actually knew you through when um, Frank Ward, one of your employees at the time, was running for Austin City Council. And I was working for Ellen Troxer, who at the time was District 8 City Council member. And since then, I have known other people that have spoken so highly of you. And it's a lot of it had to do with they've just randomly dropped things about you like, oh, you lived in Germany or oh, you worked for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, you worked for the Bush administration. They would just drop little things. And it just made me so intrigued about you. I'm like, oh my gosh, this woman is so well-wanded. And I really, really wanted to like know more. And so when Mary reached out about maybe there's a job opportunity, I like jumped on it. So that's kind of how we kind of got connected. And I'm so glad you did, because as it turned out, you were like the perfect addition for our team. And you brought an element to our team that we didn't have before. Um, oh, thank you. you know, especially with your 
background in media. You know, that's, that's something we didn't have before with somebody who had been on sort of the other side of the blanket in press. And so what you've added for our clients is amazing perspective on, okay, no, a reporter's not going to care about that. Or yes, this is gold. Let's get it out right away. Um, so you've been with us since late last year now. Is that right? Yeah. It's almost, oh, like, oh my it's almost to be in the year. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's almost been a year since. Oh, well, thank you. What better way it is to be on the Pink Granny podcast? Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so I was with Ellen Troxler's office and I didn't, never worked in government until I worked for her. Um, my husband got a job in Austin and we moved and he moved before I got here. We were engaged. So I moved once we got married here. I came from Houston. I always worked in the corporate world or I was actually in media. Mm-hmm. as a new you know news producer so like I never worked in government so I kind of got hooked up with Ellen's office because Casey was interviewing her and she mentioned hey do you know anybody I have a position in my office I'm really looking for someone that can work on the media angle and get my message and my out there and my husband was like yeah my wife would be great so <laughs> that's kind of how I got introduced to Ellen and it just skyrocketed from there so mm-hmm. And I, you know, Austin's a really small town compared to me. I grew up in inner city Houston. So like Austin to me is a small town, you know, for my husband who grew up in a very small town, East Texas, it doesn't seem that way for him, but for me, it seems like a small town. So, you know, being connected and getting to know people has been a really fun part about living in Austin. So wait, how many years ago was that now? We moved in 2015. Oh, wow. Five years. Oh, wow. What an interesting five years to be in Austin and to be in and around the Capitol, which you were uh, in Senator Campbell's office. Uh, yeah. So I went from Ellen's office to Senator Campbell's office. And I maybe I have something about working with strong, awesome women in them. I don't know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, but there is, I do find myself attracted to strong, working with and alongside mm-hmm. strong, independent women. But that gets me started. You have such an interest, as I mentioned before interesting career and I kind of want to walk through your process to where you ended up being a woman who owns her own business in politics and you work with women leaders so let's talk about the journey here so where did you where did it all first begin well in a small town in Germany actually as you mentioned um so I just this becomes relative relevant later on in the tale but I happened to grow up in Germany. My parents were U.S. citizens who loved living over there and um, moved there with the intention of staying for like a year. And then like 12 years later, they realized, oh, our children are growing up German, which is fine, but you know, they are American and we kind of need to go home now. So we moved to a small town in East Texas called Palestine, small but mighty. Uh, I know where I know it fondly. Oh yeah, your husband's like just down the road. Yeah, he grew up in Jacksonville. Yep. Yeah, that's right. We used to play y'all in football. Well, him, uh, not me. <laughs> no, that's true. No, we didn't play Houston. We were tiny. Um, but anyway, when I graduated from Texas A and M with an English degree, I was one of those kids who had no idea what they wanted to do. Um, you know, my parents, who were both public school teachers, were like. Hey, let's get you into the public schools. And I was like, oh, I, I so admire educators. I always have, but I was more interested in the policy level than I was in the, in the front line. 
So I had an opportunity uh, growing up to really absorb the importance of media and paying attention to what's happening in government. Growing up overseas, my parents were very vigilant about following the news, making sure they were tuned into what was going on back home and you know how U.S. foreign policy could maybe affect us as we lived in Germany. Uh, so every night it was like, hey, you know, quiet down, the news is on. And then, you know, even as a little kid, I'd sit there and watch the news with my parents. So I always had this really strong appreciation for, you know, government, for news. And I had an opportunity to work with um, folks at Public Strategies. Uh, and the, the truly interesting part was getting to work for Mark McKinnon, who was president, but had just finished the 2000 campaign. Uh, and had been President Bush's chief media advisor and, and uh, campaign TV advisor. And it was, you know, the start of this new administration, a Texas governor going to Washington. It was an incredible time to be at a public affairs agency during those years. And I learned so much about public policy, about um, media, about communications. And I also learned if you're not one of the people who has served in government, you just, you just lack a perspective that, uh, you know, sort of the veterans at, at public strategies had and that I admired so much. So, you know, my, my goal after that was, you know, I have to serve somewhere. So how did you make it from Texas out to California? So in 2003, Arnold Schwarzenegger announced on the tonight show when Jay Leno was still host that he was running. For governor. This was a, a time in California history that was kind of weird. Um, this was after the Enron debacle. California had paid, you know, through the nose for energy as a result. And the people blamed then Governor Gray Davis, who had just been elected to his second term in office. So he was maybe a year into it, something like that. And voter dissatisfaction was so tremendous that then Congressman Daryl Issa filed a bill that would allow um, Californians to recall their, their newly elected, re-elected governor. Um, and I think he expected to run himself and win, but instead there was this um, you know, new contender on the field, and it was Arnold. And he had to very quickly assemble a campaign team because when he went on The Tonight Show, he had you know maybe a handful of advisors, and that was it. Uh, and so he pulled together the previous Republican governor, Pete Wilson's team, just sort of like reassembled the entire staff. And one of those folks was our colleague, Marty Wilson, who was in public strategies, California office. And so I remember um, thinking, oh, there's no way I'll, I'll get a spot on that campaign. I mean, everybody and their brother wants to work on that. But it was another, it was another good lesson. And well, you're not going to know and you're not going to succeed if you don't try. So phone call was made to Marty Wilson and uh, I was allowed to come out and sort of pitch myself for the campaign. So how did that work? Pitching yourself? I mean, I know uh, I was always nervous what? as a young person trying to like throw yourself into something that you had no idea what you're getting into. Oh, it was another like stick your neck out moment for me in a, a fake it till you make it moment because I went in there thinking like, well, at, at Public Strategies, I'm you know a principal in the media group and I help write and produce advertising for clients with regulatory legislative issues. So you know I sit down in Arnold's 
office across from Marty Wilson. And he says, so what can you do? And I say, well, I write and produce. And he said, yeah, we got that. What else can you do? So I ramble through another, you know, few items on my list of things I'm capable of doing in my, you know, brief career after college. And, you know, I'm starting to sweat a little bit because everything I'm saying, he's like, we got that. I was really fortunate to have a colleague at PSI, George Cottle, who was on President Clinton's advance team. And the stories he told were amazing. And so thank God from the back of my, you know, hind brain came the suggestion of say advance. (laughs) And, you know, if you don't know what advance is, it is like, it's one of the funnest jobs on a campaign. You get to go out, scout locations for your candidates' uh, next event, whether it's a school or a military base or, you know, production floor of a factory. Um, You basically set the stage for that campaign appearance. Make sure that the shot looks great, that there are people standing behind the candidate, you know, wearing the right hat or T-shirt, you know, from the moment he arrives till the moment he or she departs it's sort of your scene to set. And so I said, Oh, I can do advance. And he said, great. That's what we'll have you do. And I breathed, you know, an internal enormous sigh of relief. Uh, and I was sent out to, uh, with the advance team to go all over California, a state I visited, but never spent, you know, a huge amount of time in, uh, for. Do you have a favorite moment that you remember from that campaign that you set up? Oh my gosh. Um, there are so many, uh, the, the, the funny thing about serving, you know, on that campaign and in the administration was, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in Germany, so I'm fluent in German and I was the only person on that campaign or, or appointed in that administration who was a fluent, fluent German speaker. Uh, and you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger is, you know, brilliant guys, hilarious, uh, very fun to work with. And he had this, habit of you know and I, I was a kid in the press office and in the communications shop you know I, I was not one of the, the higher ups in that administration but he enjoyed turning to me in a meeting you know with um maybe the cabinet or you know senior staff and just cracking a joke you know as, towards me as I sit on the back wall I were you know the, the junior staff for stat and everybody would sort of wonder like what did he just say is he talking about me and it, it was sort of an inside joke with him. And it was, it was really funny and, and fun. And, and um, I always enjoyed working for him. It was a really amazing job. And I learned a tremendous amount. Were there any mentors that you had when you were working in California? Oh, gosh. Um, like almost too many to mention. Um, the women that I worked with there, you know, I, as I, I think I mentioned, I was one of the only people who came from the outside world to work on this campaign. Everybody else were, you know, former Governor Wilson folks. And I was certainly the only Texan to work on that campaign. So I was kind of adopted by several ladies on that campaign who felt sorry for me that, you know, I can't go home for Christmas. We just got into office. We have to, you know, get things up, um, up and running. So uh, particularly Karen Hannity, who was one of the most brilliant um, communicators and spokespeople I've, I've ever worked with um, was very kind to me. I remember doing Easter and, and different holidays at her oh. house throughout my time in California. That's super nice. So how did I know that you end up in DC? So was it straight from California to DC or what was the truck to get to DC? You know, it was, and uh, that was, that was a heck of a move. I don't recommend it. <laughs> it's not fun. 
Moving's not fun in general. Cross country is a guess, you know? Um, but I had an opportunity. Um, I heard through Mark McKinnon, as a matter of fact, that Margaret Spellings, who was then uh, President Bush's secretary of education, had a press secretary spot open. And, you know, Washington, it, cutting your teeth and getting those bona fides, I think that was a tremendous lure for me. And the governor was heading into a re-election campaign. There was a lot of turnover on the staff. A lot of the people that I had worked with for years were heading out and going back to their, you know, their consulting practices or law firms or, you know, just their, their, their lives the way they were before that crazy campaign. So it was a good time to take on a new opportunity. And I had the great privilege of working with some amazing people at the U.S. Department of Education and seeing policy from the federal level, you know, as it affects states throughout our union. So, so I know you're at the Bush administration, you're in the education department, you got a lot of criticism just for the policy of no child left behind. And you're in the press office. That's like your whole job is to like sell good things. How did you deal like as a, I know, you know, I know we feel really defeated at times and women take it more personally than men. So how did you go in every day, day in and day out with your team? And like, be positive about selling this message. Oh, that's a great question. Um, because I arrived from California, you know, I was pumped up. I was super happy to be there. And I joined a, a press office and was responsible for managing a press office of people who had been, I think, you know, toiling in this vineyard, trying to promote No Child Left Behind for years. And, you know, the, I think the education community in America had drawn their own conclusions about it. But the, the bottom line with this law was it held states responsible for having their students at grade level for reading and math. Now, if I told you that, like, states have to get kids to grade level uh, on reading and math, you'd be like, well, yeah, of course, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course. Those are your tax dollars. Like, yes, schools need to make sure that children are equipped with the basics that they need to succeed in, in college or in the workplace. Um, but it was a, at the time, a mandate that came with strings attached, you know, if, if there was a requirement to report data and if, you know, those requirements weren't met, federal funding could come into play or be in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. So states and, and schools now had to kind of work a little harder to report more data, you know, do a little more testing. And it was not possible, uh, not popular, I should say. So um, it was indeed a hard slog um, trying to get out there and promote great stories about this law and about the children who benefited from it. But every now and then we would have an outstanding teacher who saw the wisdom, who embraced it, and who, you know, was a champion for this legislation. And those moments were my favorite because you're so much better off telling your story through someone else who can validate it than you are, you know, stumping for your own initiatives. So Margaret Spellings obviously is a phenomenal woman. She's inspiring. She's probably definitely, I would say, the only person that I know that's like an expert in education, um, as well known as she is. So tell me about how working with her and such a strong personality, how was that? It was fabulous. I mean, it was a life lesson for me every time I got to travel with her or staff her for an interview. She's so confident. She's so knowledgeable and so poised. And 
you know, especially having a connection from Austin with her uh, was just tremendous. And she is truly, I mean, somebody that I think of as probably the greatest mind in domestic and education policy in our nation. And I don't think I'm, you know, overstating that very much. She's, she's just an amazing person and also just really um, fun to be with. She's smart. She's funny. Uh, and, you know, very driven, but, you know, would always take the time for staffers and, and, you know, had a great interest in the people around her, which I always admired about her. I have another question. Since we're talking about you being in D.C. and working in the press corps kind of mm-hmm. in a way, dealing with press daily, do you think now it's very different than it would have been when you were in D.C.? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so I was in D.C. Uh, in, you know, 2006, 2007. and I think the landscape has changed enormously. How so? Um, consolidation has certainly affected the media there as it has, you know, outlets throughout the nation. You know, when I worked in California and you know, we would set up a TV interview, like four or five people would show up. There's the reporter, the producer, the camera guy, yeah. maybe a sound guy. You know, it was, it was a whole crowd, a whole gang of people. Today it's one person, right? Uh, and they're usually sweating and running between assignments that they have to get done for the evening news. They probably barely know what they're interviewing you or your client about. And it's just, it's really different. And I think Washington is no different. Um, But I I have to say, they've probably never had better material to cover than... I mean, yeah. (laughs) Than what they get to right now. When the president takes to Twitter, that's his, that's his press pool. Twitter now, you know? Yeah, the old, the old, you know, Bush White House press office playbook has been long discarded, for sure. I feel like when 15-year-olds in our country know more what the, belt, the, what the president's doing than, like, other people, I mean, I feel like there might be more attention, too, at the D.C. level than there would be in past. Oh, yeah. My 11-year-old, you know, has a basic grasp of kind of the administration and, and what it's done. And, and, I mean, that's amazing. That's the power of social media and the power of, um, you know, modern communications. It just, yeah, it's changed so drastically. So I, I know you've been in D.C. a while. How did you make it back to Austin? Uh, well, I'm a, definitely a Texas girl at heart. You know, we, I have lived here since 1983 with a few exceptions, obviously, California and Washington. Um, but I love the state. My family's here. This is where I, you know, my heart lies. So I heard about an opportunity to work at what was at the time the Lance Armstrong Foundation. They wanted to kind of elevate their their communications and governmental affairs operation. And they were in the middle of an incredible campaign. And so I jumped at the chance to come back to Austin to work with what was then a, a cancer icon, somebody who was probably the most effective cancer advocate in the world. I mean, and, I can't remember here in Austin. So it was fantastic. I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, I remember being in school and every person had a yellow wristband. Like you could, and everyone knew what it was. Like, you, you know, it was super, I feel like it was a part of daily life. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I started there, uh, it was amazing for the first couple of years. You know, we had this super motivated, true believer, very knowledgeable advocate who was willing to do just about anything to advocate for people who've been affected by cancer who are recovering uh to increase funding for research 
and also support people who are, you know, fighting cancer. And, you know, this is somebody who built an organization and, but looked at the landscape first and said, well, what are the other organizations doing? Well, you know, Susan G. Komen, American Cancer Society, they do an amazing job raising funds for research, but there are very few organizations at the time who focused on a patient's individual needs and, you know, help them solve the everyday cancer problems that they have to tackle. So rather than, you know, raising funds for research that, you know, are going to bear fruit probably in, you know, 15 years, Livestrong under Lance invested in um, services and programs and support that helped people, you know, in here now. Okay. So I know you had the highest highs at <laughs> the foundation, but you also had the lowest lows. And amongst this, you were just have raising your children. You're starting your family at this time. So I know like I can't imagine because at the time that was probably the biggest media scandal sensationalized that I can think of at that time. Can you uh, talk, if you want to touch on that. Yeah, I gotta say like that. I mean, I've, you know, I've worked in government. I've kind of been on the firing line in my career many times, but it, it was, it was never anything like this sustained negative attention over the course of two years on an organization that I truly loved and that, you know, the people that I shared my days with at the office also truly loved and admired. Um, and you know that, I mean, having been a reporter, you know, like you want to connect the dots, you know, if there's something fishy mm -hmm. over here, then there's gotta be something fishy over here too. And so, you know, as media dug deeper and deeper into the Lance story, and his cycling career. And, you know, they tried to tell a similar story about this, you know, blue ribbon organization that had a tremendous board of directors from, you know, some of the most prominent cancer physicians in America, uh, business leaders who helped with fundraising to a staff that had nothing to do with cycling. You know, these were social workers, uh, public health experts, you know, the furthest thing from, you know, hills in France. So it was wrenching in a way that I hadn't experienced before because it felt like our organization was under attack, you know, unfairly. And, you know, we had to muscle our way through it, responding to, you know, the New York Times, NPR, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, BBC on, you know, daily, even weekly basis um, with, you know, negative, negative premise stories over and over and over again. And it was, it was tough, especially having, you know, a small kid at the time. And I don't know what I would have done without the support of my husband who, you know, picked up every bit of slack I left and, there was probably a lot of it over the course of, you know, the couple of years that I was in the middle of that. Do you like what you're hearing and want to support Pink Granite in a more meaningful way? Consider becoming a patron today. Visit patreon.com slash pinkgranite and learn for how as little as $3 a month you can show your support for the website and in exchange receive access to members-only information, newsletters, even events depending on the level you choose. So again, visit patreon.com slash pinkgranite and become a patron today. So that's a good thing to ask. Uh, but I know, okay, we joke all the time in our office about like, because we're an all-female team about, we always, are, we always are talking about 
work family lifestyle, work balance. Do men ever really have to talk about that? <laughs> like, I feel like it's just maybe us women that are, there is like a whole industry about work-life balance and women just eat it up. But talk about how you've managed to do it with that. Like, I mean, oh, I'm, I'm just starting. I'm five months in. I have a five-month-old. Yeah. But like you, you know, you have two kids. So I'm curious to how you handle that stress and how you handle owning your own business, work-life balance. I kind of look at work-life balance as one more thing that somebody made up for us to worry about, right? It's a good point. And I did, when I was younger, I'd be like, God, my balance, is it, am I balanced? You know, am I working too much? Am I not working enough? Are my kids getting enough attention? All of that. And, you know, as I've gotten older, um, my perspective has changed a little bit. And it's now, things fluctuate. There will be times when you can spend more time with your kids. And so do it and don't feel guilty during those times about I'm not working as hard. Enjoy it because you don't know what's going to you know, come next month. I mean, 2020 has certainly been a year to prove that, right? But there are also times when you're going to be working harder and have less time for your kids. But you know, during those times, what they'll see is a woman leader rolling up her sleeves, doing important work. And they'll absorb that work ethic. So there's never, life doesn't give you a consistent kind of playing field all the time. You have to roll with the punches and worrying about one more thing like work-life balance is something that I have excused myself from. <laughs> no, I, I think that's fabulous advice because, you know, as a, as a new mom, I think that's important. I think understanding that like for, I've been really blessed in this last five months, especially that we're working from home and our clients are still steady, which, and we're adding more clients daily. And it hasn't really affected how I spend time with my kid. And I know that I worried about that a whole lot before I gave birth. So I think that's important to let young, young women know that when you do start a career and when you take the position that you want to take in life, that not to worry so much about it. It, It's it's, a lot of it is self-imposed. Oh my gosh. You, you couldn't be more right. I, when I think about like all the hours I've spent worrying about things that as I've gotten older, I realized, you know, you're the only person aware of that, right? You're the only person still hanging on to something that happened, you know, five years ago. Um, So yeah, if there's one thing I could go back and tell myself, you know, 20 years ago, it'd be like, Hey, relax. Just don't worry about it. Right. As I won't, I won't reveal ages, but since you said you're 20, what would you tell your 30 year old self? Oh my gosh. You know, sometimes when, you know how you lie awake at night and you think through like, what if I had done that instead of this? Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I think that's exactly what I would have said. Like you're doing everything right. Just relax and trust yourself and, you know, have faith in the path that life is putting in front of you. Um, when I think about like jobs that I agonized over or opportunities that I really wanted that I didn't get, which, you know, we all do. Um, I wish I could go back and tell myself like, Hey, don't worry about it. Cause the better thing, it happens in two weeks. So, you know, whatever happens, just roll with it and you'll be fine. And don't worry. And talking about the better thing you left live strong to start your own company as a mom and as a woman at ha- like, was that nerve? I mean, I, I think it'd be really stressed out to start my own company. How did, how did that come to fruition? How did you do that? Well, you know, during those years at Livestrong, especially the latter years that were just 
constant crisis communication. Um, we worked with some very well-known, reputable firms, and there were times uh, with one of them in particular where you'd, you know, you've got the New York Times calling you, and so you call your, you know, your highly paid consultant in Washington D.C. and you say, "Hey, you know, what do we do here?" Uh, you know, I have a pretty good idea of how to play this, but you know, what do you think? And you know, you'd get a call the next day. And my the, my partner with whom I started the business, Ray Holiday, and I would look at each other like, "Is this really happening? This is crazy." Um, and so we always kind of over the years looked at each other and said, "You know, if we were in business." You know, this wouldn't happen. We would, you know, get back to people at Mach 1 speed and help them navigate something that can't wait, right? Mm -hmm. uh, particularly when an organization or, or, you know, a person is in crisis. So together, we held hands after, you know, some tough years at Livestrong and we kind of jumped off the cliff. And I got to say, I, I'm so grateful to Ray because I don't know that I would have had the courage to do it by myself. Uh, but together with someone else, it, you know, it was a lot easier to embrace the idea. Like we're going to do this, we're going to do it together. And, you know, if the business fails in the first six months, well, you know, we, uh, I've got a husband who has an income and, you know, I can go get a job. That's fine, but we're going to try this. And so we did. And it, it was terrifying, but really exhilarating too. That's, I mean, that's awesome. I don't know if I would have had the courage, but what goes into starting a business like that? The, I mean, there's a lot of young women that listen to Pink Granite that eventually maybe have big dreams of starting their own company. Maybe it's a lobby firm. Maybe it's media. Maybe it's like us in public affairs. What is, what is your advice to them? It's not rocket science, right? And the biggest hurdle there was for me was the fear of failure. And that's another thing. If I could dial back in time and just say, Hey, don't worry about it. You know, it's always going to be okay. And you know, if it's, if it's not, then, you know, you're not finished yet. Um, there are a few things that we did early on that really helped us. You know, we left our employer Livestrong after having, you know, given a lot of blood, sweat and tears, which the organization really appreciated. Um, you know, our, our defense of that organization and our, you know, continued proactive media outreach to tell good stories, you know, it paid off. And I don't know that any other organization that went through what Livestrong went through would have survived, much less still be doing amazing work helping people with everyday cancer problems. So they were our very first client. And, you know, I remember very nervously going to my CEO at the time and my chief of staff and saying, well, you know, I'm starting my own business and, you know, I'd love to, you know, continue serving. And they said, oh, of course. It was like, there was no question. And, um, you know, I, I told them what I thought a good retainer would be. And they said, well, add, you know, several thousand to that and that's what we'll pay you. And so I had the, you know, the great good fortune of continuing to support that organization as a consultant. And that was my cornerstone client, you know, and it helped pay the mortgage, uh, especially because right before we started the business, my husband got laid off from his job. So. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I didn't know that Catherine, know. that would have, that would have been super stressful. It was a little, yeah. I mean, the stakes were already high, but I, you know, my fallback was like, yeah, well, we got another income if we really need it. 
And then that went away and I was like, oh, well, this really has to work. So I was 100% committed. That helped too. Yes. I mean, I can't imagine. That would be very stressful. So I know that we talked about Mach 1, but let's go into detail about what we do. Because I think that's a lot of people know like, oh, setting up interviews and helping write, craft a statement. But we do a lot more than that. So let's talk about that. Well, it comes down to what is the client's goal? Is it getting a piece of legislation passed? And, you know, our team works very closely with lobbyists. Uh, in fact, they are our biggest source of referrals. And mainly because we understand policy, we understand the legislative process. You know, Alice, you worked in a very prominent senator's office. You know, you, you know exactly what happens in, yep. in the big pink building. Uh, and that's an advantage, but you're, you're a consummate communications professional as is everyone on our team. So we design campaigns or, uh, direct, you know, ongoing efforts to influence whether it's, you know, a, a committee, uh, specific group of legislators or, you know, shift public opinion about a regulatory issue, uh, in favor of, of our clients. And you do that with you know every tool in the toolbox: social media, uh, paid media, digital advertising, appearances, opinion editorials, uh, TV interviews. Like all of those things are weapons in the arsenal to you send your message. And to also, so often, you know, what we hear is we've heard this, you know, at the federal level. Um, lawmakers need cover to embrace your issue. They can't, you know, so often just simply. Um, manufacture an interest in this issue out of the blue. There has to be maybe a groundswell of uh, material in the press or grassroots. And that gives them, you know, a great stage to seize that issue, make it their own, champion it, and, you know, do so, something great for the people of their district who are now aware of that issue as well. One of my favorite part of the job is that we get to work with um, a lot of leadership and we actually help them build their confidence and we offer a lot of thought leadership guidance. Talk about how you love to work with women in leadership positions. Maybe some, I know we're not getting paid on this, but what about giving some free advice to women about how they can step up to be leaders? Maybe some free advice here, guys. Ah, here, here comes the free advice. For, for <laughs> You know, f find your passion. It's a bit of a cliche, but uh, if it's if you're passionate about it, then it's not work, right? It's your kind of heart and soul. And you know, we're working with somebody right now who is a you know prominent member of academia who realizes that she can use her voice to champion issues in a way that she never has before. So we've started an op-ed campaign with her. You know, they're her ideas, it's in her voice, and we help her get um, attention to the issues that she really cares about, whether it's in, you know, national publications or, or you know, state-focused publications. And to me, it's the most fulfilling part, Alice, is helping women sort of find that voice and find the platform where they can really push progress on issues that they care so much about. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think that's the funnest part of the job. I love that part. I also want to go into, you know, you do help women in leadership. 
What is your favorite? I know we're an all female team, but you once mentioned that you actually love to work with females and you love to hire them. Can you tell me a little more why you mentioned that one time? And I just think it's interesting. So I want everyone else to know. Oh, thank you. Um, I, you know, I've, I've had the great privilege of working with amazing people throughout my career, men and women. Um, and I feel like, especially with the team that you and I are a part of, like you, me, uh, Mary Love, Molly Young, um, we have kind of a mind meld on, there's no like explanation needed a lot of the time. Um, we're just, we're women. We understand each other. We support each other in a way that um, is rare, I think, in the workplace. The flexibility that we all provide for each other, uh, the collaboration, especially. I think, you know, what I've seen in my career so often is that women convene and collaborate mm. uh, in a way that is so supportive of achieving the goal, right? And it's, there's less, you know, and I don't want to throw shade at, at the fellows because I have worked with some of the most amazing guys in the world. And I, I definitely would not have had the courage to be where I am today were, were it not for some of the men who've mentored me. But um, there's something about working with other women who, with whom you have that mind melt, with whom you have kind of that secret language, with whom you share the same values when it comes to working and getting things done and dedication to, you know, achieving exactly what we promised clients um, that I just absolutely love. And I know you, so why do you love to, you, that's why you like to hire women, right? I like to hire women because we share a secret language almost. We yeah. share the same values. Um, there's a commitment to collaboration and consensus building that I feel is the most productive way uh, to work and to work as a team. And that's something that I've enjoyed over the last few years more than anything. I have in my career. You work, I mean, I work as well, but we work, and over your career, you've worked with a lot of powerful people and really influential. So what makes a good leader? What advice do you have for other young women or other men who are listening to the podcast that they can obtain to step up to the plate? It, it, you know, I, I learned a lesson um, listening to Arnold Schwarzenegger throughout, you know, the dozens if not hundreds of interviews I staffed while I was an appointee in that administration and people would ask him all the time you know well you didn't get that proposition you know passed or you did you know your bill failed and how do you feel about that failure and he would always say something like it's not failure you know if you set out to lift 500 pounds and you lift 495 that's success because you would have never gotten to 495 had you not pushed yourself to, you know, hit 500. And the fear of failure is such, you know, as we were saying earlier, you worry so much, you know, you're so afraid of failure um, that if you can have the ability to sort of be conscious of it and put it aside and let the positive uh, sort of shape your outlook, it's better for your health and it supports your success. So, so often we worry about not succeeding and that is exactly what's holding us back, right? Because instead of devoting ourselves to, you know, the positive progress that we want to make, we're worrying, you know, we're lying awake at night and stressing ourselves out. So I think, you know, my first piece of advice would be just don't stress. 
And don't look at, at attempts you make as failure. They're learning experiences, right? And they lead exactly where you know you need to go in your life. I think that's fabulous advice because I do. I think we always read those little cliches. It's like failure is success, yeah. but it's it's hard to like rationalize that. It's hard to like you know. I think that's what most people they you know fear fear of failure is real for a lot of people. Totally it's hard, and it's hard to get out of your head for that. Yeah, absolutely. I you know I still battle it today, but I recognize it for what it is now. It's not just like hey the unexamined life is not worth living and I need to think about my failure. It's no, that's negative reflection. And you're building up, you know, kind of a feedback loop for yourself that tears you down. And I think women especially tend to do that more than our male colleagues. Um, and I, I wish we didn't, and I'm trying not to, and I want to, I want to inspire you and, and encourage you not to either. As a business owner and a manager, what is some advice do you tell other people that are looking to be a manager or looking as a younger self? What are some things that you've learned to be in that position as a different perspective than just being an employee? Yeah. Um, it's hard to get rid of the employee or the appointee mindset when you start a business. You know, that is ingrained in us over, you know, decades in my case. And so I still find myself every now and then, even after seven years um, running a business, thinking like an employee, which isn't a bad thing. It's just, you need to shift towards, um, what, where else can you grow? Where else can we lead? You know, are there areas that we can expand to where clients might have a, you know, legislative or regulatory challenge that, you know, a solid communication strategy could help them overcome. Um, so that was, that's one thing that, uh, took me a while to get under my belt. Okay. I know we're still, this week is awesome. It's the 19th amendment, you know, celebration. So I want to ask, did you have a female role throughout your career, or your lifetime that you find that's valuable? You know, I met my role while when I was 12 years old at Palestine middle school. Uh, and her name is Sarah Hartley and she has devoted her career to the city of Austin. She's been at public works. She's at watershed protection at the moment. Uh, and she's an executive who has devoted her career, not just to public service and, you know, the, the city that we love, but also to reshaping the way women work in the city and, uh, creating equity where perhaps there was room for improvement. And she's so devoted she's so smart and she, yet she all, and she's so probably has way too much on her plate, but she always finds time to, you know, sit down with people she works with, you know, if they have an issue or if they need guidance or, or a little bit of counsel and, you know, she gives them her full attention. And I just, I admire her so, so much. That's amazing. I feel like mine's a little cliche in the fact that I would like to say my mom, but my mom, you know, she went to college, then she worked as a teacher and then my brother, she had some complications with she and my brother. So she ended up being a stay-at-home mom until I was like middle school. But she felt she needed more. She she didn't feel satisfied being a stay-at-home mom. So mm -hmm. she started taking night classes and then she got a master's and then she went back to work. And then I do think my mom working was really 
influential in my life. Not that I don't think that being, you know, whatever choice is important to you, but I think her work ethic was really powerful. She was home, then she did school as still being a mom and then went to work. And then she's never, ever turned anyone down. And then she also went back in her forties or late forties to get a doctorate. So my mom has a doctorate, still works, working on writing a book. So she just kind of, to me, is the mold of like, your dream is enough. You can still reinvent yourself and do whatever you want at any age, which I always find like super powerful and know that I your mom is amazing I don't want to do this she change my career. <laughs> I think so <laughs> I think awesome. so I mean I but, think you know I we get kind of stuck in the roles that we think we're assigned to and we we stop dreaming at a certain age like we've we've had the kids now we have to raise them we've got our job we've got the career that we chose now we have to you know sort of just continue on that path, but she didn't, right? She kind of got out there and reinvented herself over and over again. That's so cool. Um, you has your career in politics and government has spanned twenty years. Where, how have you seen firsthand women involved, and where do you see us going? Well, you know, just the fact that we see more of our our female colleagues running for office is amazing to me, and they're doing it in ways that are very different from the way women's campaigns looked, you know, 20 years ago when you tried to be a carbon copy of your male colleagues. Like I don't see that happening anymore. The campaigns I see that, you know, feature female candidates, they are um, more open and down to earth and realistic about the challenges that especially their female constituents face then I think I've ever seen. And I admire that. Like women like Jennifer Sarver, they're sort of pushing the envelope on how to communicate in campaigns and using every tool at their disposal, which I admire very much. And, and you know, as a result, we're seeing more and more of them in office, uh, which I'm absolutely thrilled about. We're not there yet. We need more. We need more. And, you know, you mentioned the 19th Amendment. You know, I know you and I were talking the other day and I was like, I wonder if, they could see into the future and see where we are now. If they would feel proud of us, like, yes, that's why we did this. Or would they feel like, hey, how come there aren't more women in Congress? You know? I we, wonder still, we still have room to go. But I do yeah. think an important tool of that is knowing thyself and just stepping up to the plate. In the words of my former boss, Ellen Chocksler, you just got to step up. That could be in your community. That could be in advocacy. You know, that could be in a grassroots movement. That could be running for office at any level, school board to Congress, to even president. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I will gladly adopt that, that quote from the great Ellen Troxclair. She's absolutely right. I mean, I agree. Catherine, do you have anything else you'd love to mention or ask or chat about that you want everyone on Pink Granite to know? Well, Alice since we have another minute or two, what was it like in Senator Campbell's office? Well, first, I guess I should talk about when I worked at the city. Cause when I worked at the city, I had like no governmental experience. I did work on one campaign in college. Mm -hmm. I'll give you that. I worked, but I did a lot of the door knocking and the sign the petition. So I did a lot of the grunt work. So I, yeah. So to be like a key, you know, key policy person and media person and, you know, at city level was really interesting. Um, I learned quickly that, you know, politics was more emotional than I anticipated. 
Mm -hmm. in the corporate world, it was definitely, it's all safety and, you know, numbers driven versus government, I feel like is policy and emotion, which is interesting that they should go together. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was a sharp learning curve, but I I had a, a lot of lessons learned. It was real quick. It was really fun. I had amazing, Ellen put us in an amazing team. We had great coworkers. And despite the fact that we were in this unique position where she was a different different um, party than everyone else on council and brought different viewpoints. We're always usually the ones being like attacked. So it ended up being a really unique situation. And because of that, it was more like a crisis situation, but also we got to develop our own brand and our own voice and kind of showcase Ellen's abilities to be a leader. And so that was really fun. And so moving on up to the pink granite building, went inside (laughs) working for Senator Campbell she is a force we reckon with. She's a doctor. She's an emergency room doctor. She started off as a nurse, but then after a few years of working as a nurse, she realized she wanted to be the doctor telling everyone to do. So then she went on to medical school. So she's a very determined person. And I feel like that is something that I'm attracted to in bosses and just in friends, just the drive to be, to do something. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very valuable for anyone. So working at Senator Campbell's office was fun. It was unique. I thought we had a great 2019 session. I think 2020 is going to be, I mean, 2018, not 2019, 2020 will be really interesting. So I'm kind of curious about how it's all going to evolve and what's going to happen. I do kind of have some ideas of what session would be like. Do you have any ideas, predictions? Well, I I mean, stating the obvious, it's going to be unlike anything, you know, you or I or most people in the Capitol have ever seen. Um, I think, you know, we, we joke sometimes that like lobbyists, you know, come in the schmoozer or worker variety. And I think oh, it's yeah. a pretty bad session for the schmoozers. Um, you know, data is going to be more important than ever. Existing relationships will be very important. Um, but, you know, with the probably narrowed focus that this coming legislative session will have, um, you know, I think from our perspective outside of the building, uh, it's going to be harder potentially to um, push sort of peripheral topics, peripheral um, causes. And I think the causes that don't have voices loudly championing them, uh, you know, stand to stand to lose and there's a real risk for them. So what, you know, we're preparing our clients to do is uh, focus more on data, um, begin outreach on issues that you, you know, that you want prominently uh, attended to in the session, you know, start now, if not two months ago. Right. Um, so it's, yeah, it's going to be a weird one. What do you think? I think the scope of work is going to be a lot less. I don't think they're going to get, be able to have the capacity to get Mm -hmm. as much stuff done as they usually do. So I definitely think what's going to get done is going to be a lot less. And so because of that, it will be very valuable for people that need work passed or laws passed or anything they need done it's going to be kind of chopping block yeah so as you said relationships are key i think that's in any job at any level but as we wrap up um any final thoughts you'd like to leave our young or interesting and our male colleagues or friends that are listening to the pink granite podcast um well i think it's that you know when i was younger um and, you know, when President Bush was president and even before that, there was a sense of collegiality um, that we sometimes don't see anymore. 
you know, regardless of what party you are, regardless of, um, you know, your, your beliefs about a certain policy issue, we're all Texans and, you know, we are, we're all in this together and it's our state and, um, you know, all of us care about it. We may not agree on, you know, every single policy issue, but there's room for kindness and there's room for supporting each other regardless. And so, you know, let love rule, Alice. <laughs> well, I want to thank Amy and the Pink Granite Podcast for having us on this today. It was great to talk. And I just want to leave us with one final thought. In the last hundred years, women have gone from winning the right to vote to holding extreme valuable offices in government. I know it's been slow progress and sometimes uneven, but I know that our voices continue to be heard. So I look forward to a next hundred years to see where us amazing women can go. And I look forward to all the young women that are listening to this podcast and men that y'all do some amazing things with your life. So in the words of my former boss, we all need to just step up. I love it. Well said, Alice. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Amy. And thanks for having us on Pink Granite. Thank you for listening. Please visit pinkgranitetexas.com to become part of our community and follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at pinkgranitetx. And if you enjoyed this interview, please also take a moment to leave a positive review for a new podcast. Thank you.